I never thought I would be looking into this theory, hollow earth, but here we are. I truly never cared enough to look into it, like it just didn't interest me at all. But I decided if it's a theory, this means there are some diehard fans out there, people that are willing to look unhinged to the rest of society. So I decided for those diehard Hollow Earth fans, I'll sink my teeth into this and figure out what it's all about. What I found, honestly, it really did have me opening my mind to reframing facts, what we truly know, versus things that are just accepted as scientific truth, even though the knowledge we have is finite, puny. Very interesting to entertain, at least. Convincing? Well, you'll have to stay tuned to find out. So let's do this, guys. Take a deep breath and open your minds. Today, I will be discussing the hollow earth theory. Do Hitler, the Vikings, the Nazis, Amelia Earhart, flying saucers, woolly mammoths, and giants all have in common? They all escaped to our inner Earth. Yep, hollow Earth, giant animals, extraterrestrial technologies, beautiful forests, and a civilization living inside. The hollow Earth theory is a pseudoscientific belief that the Earth is hollow, kind of. Do you remember Halley's Comet, sometimes called Halley's Comet? Well, Edmund Halley of Halley's Comet was a famous astronomer, mathematician, and physicist in the 1700s, and he was the one who introduced the concept, now deemed a pseudoscience, of hollow Earth in 1692. Halley suggested that the Earth consisted of a shell that was about 500 miles thick, two inner concentric spherical shells, and an innermost core. He suggested that these shells each contain their very own atmospheres, which separate the shells, and that each shell has its own magnetic pole, with each sphere rotating at different speeds. Just think of it like an atmospheric world that we live in, with poles, like the whole thing, within another atmospheric world, within another. Halley argued that this theory would explain those anomalous compass readings that happen. He stated that the Aurora Borealis was actually escaping gas from our inner Earth, and that each of these layers possibly contained luminous atmospheres, a small, centralized sun, therefore all containing their own source of warmth and possibly also inhabited. John Sims Jr., an American Army officer, trader, and lecturer, was another proponent in the hollow earth theory and suggested that the poles of our outer crust were basically entrances into the inner earth. These are called Sims holes. So let's talk about the deepest we've ever seen into our earth. It's called the Kola Super Deep Borehole 
SG-3 drilled by Russia. They were only able to dig down about 40,230 feet into the surface, which actually does sound like a lot. It's about seven and a half miles. I guess that's kind of far. But the hole took almost 20 years to dig. The reason this project was abandoned 20 years later in 1992 was because drillers encountered temperatures that were just too high for any equipment that we had to withstand. At least, that's what was widely reported. The Russians found things that debunked a lot of scientific theories, like how our mantle probably contained a good bit of basalt or volcanic rock, but there wasn't. And instead, water was found two to three miles deep, which was much greater in depth than scientific models had ever previously predicted. Okay, here's a tangent that deserves an episode entirely to itself. So Russia wasn't the only one with a borehole project. Americans had one too. It just suffered from poor management. Russia had a public Kola Superdeep borehole, but a whistleblower came forward to tell of a secret borehole project by Russians being dug in Siberia. This hole went even deeper than the Kola borehole. This hole went nine miles into the surface, and the temperatures were crazy hot, up to a thousand degrees Fahrenheit, which was totally unexpected. But this drill started spinning wildly, and they realized that they had come upon a great cavity within the earth that science said definitely wasn't supposed to be there. Everyone on the job site and locals said that they could hear something coming from the hole. They shut off their equipment and it was still there. So they lowered a specialized microphone made to withstand high temperatures deep into this hole. It melted within a matter of minutes, but enough audio was captured for them to recognize that these sounds were coming from the borehole. And if you haven't heard, they called it the well to hell. Over half of the members of the team quit on the spot. They swore you could hear screams of human souls being tortured. Interestingly, when I was younger, my dad, who I talked about sometimes on my other podcast, Creepy Bus, was really into this stuff. He was also super religious. He told me that he found a clip of the sounds from this borehole. He played the clip for me when I was young, and it was definitely sounds of screaming, wailing, crying. Not gonna lie, it was extremely jarring. Anyway, this story was of course picked up by major news networks and it was reported on by Art Bell, host of the Coast to Coast AM radio show, who was the one to receive the information and audio from the borehole from the whistleblower. TBN, the Christian network, really took this story and ran with it. They put it on TV and print. Someone trying to find the source of the story could never really get down to the bottom of it though. It was just one of those, he said, she said, you follow a certain source and then it was another, he said, she said. So whether or not this was just a great urban legend or whether this is truly hell inside earth beneath our feet, I guess that's just for us to find out when we get there. You can find this sound online if you truly want to go hear it. Now Sims, you know, of the Sims whole theory, the openings to inner earth at the poles, never backed down from advocating his theory. 
even up to the 19th century, he would not be silenced. He campaigned, gave lectures, and published letters advocating for an expedition to the North Pole, which would prove his theory. Sims was able to actually convince enough people of his theory that he did get Congress to vote on funding for the trip. It was shot down, but he continued to campaign until he died in 1849. And another tangent. I know some people are severely geographically challenged, so if that's you, to give you a visual, assuming that the Earth is round, the South Pole is located in Antarctica, and the North Pole is located in the middle of the Arctic Ocean. Now, get this. You remember how I said there was water found inside of the Earth? Well, it was finally reported on in 2014. Scientists recently discovered there are massive reservoirs of water, oceans, hundreds of miles beneath us. So much water, in fact, three times the amount on the surface of the world's oceans today. What do you make of that? Now, many, 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 many ancient cultures believed in hollow earth as well. In these stories of hollow earth, the name of the interior of the earth is called Agartha, which is sometimes referred to slightly differently by different cultures. There's Agarti and Agartha. But each culture who has these beliefs or legends detail the existence of a highly advanced civilized paradise, filled with subterranean people who have reached superlative spiritual status and intelligence. They are like humans who have advanced to their ultimate potential. They are ascended masters. Agartha is believed to be interlinked to all continents of the world by a vast network of tunnels, some created by natural forces like springs, lava tubes, and others by inhabitants of the inner land. Some entrances to Agartha are said to be highly guarded secrets, only known to a handful of highly significant people here on Earth. Think like the Dalai Lama. But some well-known legends say that there are entrances at Mammoth Cave in Kentucky, the base of the Great Pyramid of Giza, Manaus in Brazil, and the North and South Poles. These entrance points are all connected on planetary grid points called ley lines. And if you don't know what ley lines are, they are basically alignments drawn onto the Earth, and each vortex of the intersection of these lines you can find historic structures and prominent landmarks. So it's believed that ancient cultures used these lines for navigational purposes, but they also harbor electromagnetic energy. Oftentimes these points in the Earth's ley lines have mysterious, unexplainable, supernatural happenings at them. They contain almost a magic power. The lines are perfectly mathematically connected if you see them on a map, they are symmetric and equidistant. Together, the vortices form an icosahedron shape, which is 12 vertices. These pinpoints of where significant ancient structures lay are high points that contain high concentrations of electrical charge. Structures like the Egyptian pyramids, Stonehenge, and Machu Picchu are located on the vertices of these ley line points. The Bermuda Triangle is situated on a vortex. These ley lines have been lost on thought to narrow-minded 20th century science and are deemed as pseudo-archaeology and pseudoscience. 
but ancient cultures did not think so and used these energy points for very specific purposes that apparently we don't care to look further into. Except for Graham Hancock. God, I love him. Hollow Earth believers say that UFOs are not extraterrestrial. They are manufactured by the inner Earth habitants who are thousands of years ahead of us in knowledge. Now, it's not widely talked about, but there are a lot of reports of UFOs coming out of the ground into our skies. I'll have to get into that one another time, otherwise this episode is going to be like four hours long. The capital city of Agartha is Shambhala, and it is portrayed in ancient cultures as the Forbidden Land, the Land of Wonders, the Land of White Waters, the Land of Living Fire, the Land of Radiant Spirits, the Land of Wonders, and the Land of Living Gods. There's no shortage on these stories, if you can't tell. In some ancient cultures, Shambhala is considered to be the origin of the Garden of Eden. The Tibetans believe that Shambhala is an epicenter for ancient knowledge and enlightenment. Some say that the Mayans actually moved into this civilization as well, due to their mysterious disappearance. The inhabitants of Agartha are extremely long-lived, as well as highly intelligent and scientifically advanced. They generally do not interfere with their exterior world, but some say that they will appear every now and then to offer constructive criticism and technology that seems extraterrestrial. Nazi Germany, anybody? Which, by the way, it is rumored that this is where Hitler escaped to if you believe the Hitler didn't commit suicide theory. This deserves a whole episode in itself. If you didn't know, in 2009, a skull in the Soviet archives claimed to be Hitler's was actually a woman's skull. So there is no evidence of Hitler's death. Hmm. Not to mention, some of Hitler's top advisors, maybe even Hitler himself, believed that the Earth was hollow. And if you believed the he escaped to Antarctica theory, then maybe you believe he possibly went to the South Pole. Sem's Hole. Ancient Buddhist philosophy mentions Agartha, claiming their society originated when a holy man led a tribe into the caverns of the underworld, and that this race is superhuman. They possess knowledge and intellectual abilities that far surpass what we have on the surface. These superior entities do occasionally surface to investigate the progress of the human race. I mentioned the Dalai Lama earlier from Tibet. Apparently, he is the terrestrial representative of the king of the underground society, receiving messages from the grid points that connect Agartha with Tibet. Many Native American cultures claim that their gods originated from within the earth and also that the interior world is connected to surface dwellers by way of a large hole in the north. The Egyptians, Chinese, Eskimos, all have ancient writings that describe a great opening in the north and a race of people that live within the surface where their ancestors originated, this mystical paradise. The ancient Greeks believed that an underworld was a dark place filled with souls of the dead. Now, we can't get through this episode without talking about this. Lizard people. Yeah. Ancient Mesopotamian cultures considered their ancestors gods, and you can see them depicted in their art. They were humanoids with reptile-like faces. 
And it wasn't just Mesopotamian cultures either. Ancient Sumerians, Aztecs, and Mayans, and in the Hopi culture, the legend is that 5,000 years ago, a meteor shower caused these strange lizard humanoid beings to seek refuge underground. And Nagas, or human-serpent hybrids, are still worshipped in many cultures today. The fact is, so many ancient cultures have a reptile-like god who helped humanity advance our civilization. Some say they have a very malicious intent, wanting control over our planet. Some say they are even talked about in the Bible, shape-shifting reptilians, such as the serpent in the Garden of Eden or the Nephilim, these divine beings or fallen angels interbreeding with the daughters of men. Essentially, demons making babies with women. The Nephilim were also known as great warriors and giants, which I'll touch on in a minute. Those lizard people believers believe that reptilians are still here underneath us trying to regain control over society by interbreeding with humans and obtaining positions of power, like politicians, royalty, and famous entertainers. I know this is cuckoo, but the point is the idea that reptilians live underground is not something that someone in the 20th century just decided to create. Reptilian stories have been around for ages. And now, if things weren't crazy enough, this is where the episode takes a turn that I wasn't quite expecting. A strange and interesting story. Richard E. Byrd was basically a national and international hero in the 1920s. He attended the University of Virginia and the United States Naval Academy. He served in the Navy, active duty for World War I, where he was promoted to lieutenant, he became one of the world's foremost aviators. He commanded air stations in Nova Scotia and actually helped the Navy plan the first transatlantic flight. Byrd played a key role in the Navy's aeronautical program, where Congress promoted him to lieutenant commander. He eventually became an independent aviation pioneer. Through other accomplishments, Byrd received a Medal of Honor from Congress. Bird and three other men were the first to fly transatlantic from New York to France in June of 1927. He was the first American expedition to explore Antarctica. Bird became one of the most famous explorers of his generation. He wrote articles and four books, went on lecture tours, founded refugee campaigns after the war ended. Now, Richard Bird was the first man to fly over the South Pole and was the first man to fly over the North Pole on May 9th, 1926. All of this to say, Byrd was a trusted, decorated naval officer, prominent aviator, and an international hero who helped lead the way in the future of air travel. In May of 1996, Ohio State University announced the discovery of a diary of Richard Byrd's flight over the North Pole. In Byrd's entry, he noted the time, small bits of what was happening, such as adjustments to the fuel mixture, turbulence, base camp check-ins, overall a normal flight. From 6 a.m. to 9 a.m., pole bound, everything is fine. At 9.10 a.m., Byrd writes that there is vast ice and snow, 
but it has a strange yellowish color and pattern as well as a reddish and purple color. They check back in with the base camp to relay these strange colorations in the ice and snow. Then the magnetic and gyro compasses began gyrating and wobbling. He and his radio man with him used the sun as their compass while their instruments weren't working. All of their controls are a bit slow to respond, they're sluggish, but there's no indication of why this could be happening. In the distance, they can see what appears to be mountains. 30 minutes after they first see these elusive mountains, they realize that they are mountains. After an altitude change, they encounter strong turbulence again. As they've crossed the mountain range and continuing northward, Bird spots what appears to be a valley with a small river running through the center portion of it. But it's green. There shouldn't be lush green at the North Pole. Their compasses are still malfunctioning. They alter their altitude again and take a left turn to get a better view of the valley. It's green with moss or some type of knit grass. He noted the light seemed much different as well. He couldn't see the sun anymore. Then they spot a large animal, appearing to be an elephant. No, not an elephant. A mammoth. An incredible sight, but there it was. They decrease their altitude even more and take binoculars to examine what they're seeing as a mammoth. Confirmed. Definitely a mammoth or a mammoth-like animal. He reports this to base camp. Continuing on, the landscape becomes greener, green rolling hills, the temperature raises to 74 degrees Fahrenheit. Navigational instruments are back to normal now. Puzzling, he attempted to report this back to base camp, only now the radio isn't functioning. At 11.30 a.m., what he's seeing seems to level out and normalize a bit, and then he sees a city. He thinks this is impossible, and his aircraft is oddly buoyant. He tries a few controls, and they're just not working. He looks over and suddenly sees a strange type of aircraft closing in rapidly alongside him. It is disc-shaped, and it has a radiant quality to it. Close enough to see the markings on the side of it, a swastika. What? is this. He tries the controls again and they do not respond. It's like he's trapped in an invisible vice grip. All of a sudden, the radio crackles and a voice in English, but with a Nordic or German accent says, Welcome Admiral, we shall land you in exactly five minutes. Bird notes that the engine of the plane seems to have just stopped. The controls are useless but the plane is in its force field, or whatever it is, turning itself. They begin landing. The plane shudders slightly and they go into a downward motion like he's in an elevator or something, just straight down. And they finally touch ground with only a slight jolt. Bird is trying his best to make a very hasty last entry into his flight log. Several men are approaching him on foot towards the aircraft. They're tall, blonde, and the city behind them is shimmering, almost pulsating with rainbow hues of colors. Bird sees 
no weapons, but he hears a voice ordering him by name to open the cargo door, and he complies, leaving his diary behind. Upon his return, everything he wrote down is from memory, and his mind is blown. It defies imagination, and it makes him feel like if it's something he had heard, it would be complete madness, and he wouldn't believe it if he hadn't have witnessed it himself. Bird says that these people were extremely cordial and took them to a small platform-like vehicle with no wheels, and they were taken to the glowing city with great swiftness. As they approach, he said the city buildings seemed to be made of crystal-like material. They arrive at a building type he had never seen before, and he and his radio man were given a warm beverage that they had never tasted before, but it was delicious. After about 10 minutes, two men come and tell Bird to accompany them, but it seems like he just had no option but to comply. He leaves his radio man behind and he enters what seems to be like a clear elevator. They descend, the machine stops, the door lifts silently upward, they go down a long hall. It seems to be rose-colored light emanating from the walls themselves. One of the men, or beings, motioned for them to stop before this huge door. Over the door is an inscription that Bird can't read. The door opens and he walks inside. Someone speaks, telling him not to be afraid and that he is there to speak with their master. The coloration of the room is so beautiful. He sees his surroundings and he's in awe of the beauty before him. He says it was the most beautiful sight he had ever seen in his entire existence, and it was just too beautiful and wondrous to describe in human terms that would do it justice whatsoever. He sees a man who appears to be very old. He motions for Bird to sit down with him. Softly speaking, this man tells him, We have let you enter here because you are of noble character and well-known on the surface world. Surface world? Yes, this master man replies. You are in the domain of the Ariani, the inner world of the earth. He tells Bird that he won't be there for long and will be escorted back to the surface shortly, but he was summoned there for a message. The man tells him that they became alarmed after the atomic bombs over Hiroshima and Nagasaki. They sent their flugelrads, flying machines, to the surface to investigate what our race had done. But of course, the past is the past. He stated that they have not interfered before our race's wars and barbarity, but they have learned to tamper with a power that is not for man, speaking of the atomic bomb. The underground race has already delivered messages to the powers of our world, but they had not heeded their warnings. They brought Bird there to be a witness to their world that it does exist. The man says, this new culture that he is seeing is many thousands of years beyond Bird's race. The master's eyes seem to penetrate deeply into Bird's mind, and after studying him for a few moments, the man replied, Your race has now reached the point of no return, for there are those among you who would destroy your very world rather than relinquish their power as they know it. In 1945 and afterward, we tried to contact your race, but our efforts were met with hostility. 
our Flugelrads were fired upon, yes, even pursued with malice and animosity by your fighter planes. So now, I say to you, my son, there is a great storm gathering in your world, a black fury that will not spend itself for many years. There will be no answer in your arms, there will be no safety in your science. It may rage on until every flower of your culture is trampled and all human things are leveled in vast chaos. Your recent war was only a prelude of what is yet to come for your race. We here see it more clearly with each hour. Do you say I am mistaken? Bird replied, No, it has happened once before. The Dark Ages came and they lasted for more than 500 years. The man continues, Yes, the Dark Ages that will come now for your race will cover the earth like a pall, but I believe that some of your race will live through the storm. Beyond that, I cannot say. We see at a great distance a new world stirring from the ruins of your race, seeking its lost and legendary treasures, and they will be here, safe in our keeping. When that time arrives, we shall come forward again and help you revive your culture and your race. Perhaps, by then, you will have learned the futility of war and its strife, and after that time, certain of, your culture and science will be returned to your race to begin anew. You are to return to the surface world with this message. They had closing words. Bird stood up. He thought to himself that he must be dreaming. But he's looking around, and it's not a dream. This is real. And for some reason, he bowed slightly, not knowing if he did this out of respect or humility. Suddenly, the hosts who had brought him there were again by his side. The hosts told him that they didn't need to delay, that he needed to return to his scheduled timetable. He was brought back to the radio man he came with, who had an anxious expression on his face. Bird told him that everything was alright. They were then taken right back to the aircraft. The engines were idling and they boarded. They were immediately lifted by that unseen force until they were around 2,700 feet. Two of those aircrafts went alongside of them for a ways, while their aircraft still had no registered readings, so he couldn't see how fast they were going, but he knew it was really, really fast. Now the radio comes through at 2.15pm. We are leaving you now, Admiral. Your controls are free. Alf Petersen. The Flugelrads disappeared into the pale blue sky. The plane had a sudden sharp downdraft and they were able to recover the controls. Back to his log now, he says they are over vast areas of ice and snow. He radios base camp who were relieved that contact was reestablished. 3 p.m., they land smoothly at base camp. Now he's on a mission. Bird attended a staff meeting at the Pentagon where he stated in full the discovery and what the master had said to him. It was recorded the president was advised. And then, Bird was detained for over six and a half hours, interviewed intently by top security forces and a medical team. He was then placed under a strict control from national security provisions and ordered to remain silent in regard to everything he had just seen, learned, and stated on behalf of humanity. 
he was reminded that he was a military man and he must obey orders. Bird wrote in his diary that he had to do this in secrecy and obscurity concerning the Arctic flight of February 19, 1947. There comes a time when the rationality of men must fade into insignificance and one must accept the inevitability of the truth. I am not at liberty to disclose the following documentation at this writing. Perhaps it shall never see the light of day of public scrutiny, but I must do my duty and record here for all to read one day. In a world of greed and exploitation, of certain of, mankind can no longer suppress that which is truth. That is Admiral Byrd's story. A secret diary? Where did the radio man go? Was the radio man given the same orders as Admiral Byrd? Was Byrd insane? Did he even write it? Some say probably not, given his accolades. Others believe what he documented was exactly what he saw. Here is another interesting story. A man named Dallas Thompson had a terrible car accident in 1997. He was driving along the highway in a heavy rain. His car hydroplaned at 70 miles per hour and fell from a 250-foot cliff. The fireman who arrived on the scene was astonished that this man's head wasn't decapitated because the top of the car had been crushed almost entirely to the floor. But Dallas Thompson had survived. He did, however, have a life-changing near-death experience. Here is what he said. He had seen a light so bright that it burnt his eyes and actually, in real life, made him legally blind. He was suddenly flooded with knowledge about the world. When he regained consciousness, he was convinced that the Earth was hollow and it had openings at the North Pole. He was now on a mission to locate and explore it. He said there are cavern systems and caves that transverse the whole mantle. He said that because of the special atmosphere, living creatures were protected from pollutants and harmful rays. He said there were herds of mammoth and ancient tribes down there, some members living up to be 1,700 years old. He said he remembered these things which had long been forgotten. Thompson secured funding to travel to the North Pole with a Solo Trek backpack helicopter to descend into the hole, and his trip was planned for May 24, 2003. He had radio appearances, word spread about his trip. He was inundated with over 5,600 emails every few days. He had a previous book, which was now suddenly a bestseller. And then his book was pulled and discontinued. And shortly before his journey was to take place, Thompson disappeared. Did he make it or was he silenced? Look, this could go on forever, but if you're interested in learning some other crazy things that tie into Hollow Earth, read up on giants and the history of giants and Vikings and actual skeletal remains that have been found. These giants, as believed by ancient cultures, went to the underworld, Hollow Earth, to escape. There are many other accounts from people who ended up in Hollow Earth, and most of them include sightings of giants like men 10 feet tall. Also find the story of Dr. Nephi Cotton of Los Angeles. 
and also the account of Norwegian Olaf Jensen. I feel like ancient beliefs, scientific data, current scientific data that shows the inside of the earth isn't exactly correct. History, the history of regions, lizard people, UFOs, it connects all of these crazy things together. Also, why doesn't the government let planes fly over the poles? They are all directed to go around the poles. At least, that's the rumor. Okay, so I've been actually trying to research that topic for a little while, and there is a lot of conflicting information out there. What I've gathered from more quote-unquote reputable sources is that, no, it's not illegal to fly over the poles, but it is strongly discouraged, and nobody does it. According to the Sheffield School of Aeronautics, they don't fly over the South Pole specifically because of low visibility and undeveloped infrastructure. It's just too difficult and too dangerous. They also stated that there are very strong magnetic fields that surround the polar regions and that navigating there is very challenging because it interferes with magnetic navigational equipment. Sound like a familiar story? Hmm. Oh, and in 2019, CBS News released an article titled Disturbing Discovery giant hole found under Antarctica glacier, and it's grown at an explosive rate. It's about as big as Florida. They say that this is due to climate change, but is it? Is it due to climate change? You know, none of this helps the fueling of the hollow earth theory. Just saying. Before I close out the crazy, kind of playing on the hollow earth theory for just a second, Cyrus Teed, a spiritual leader and healer, actually inverted the hollow earth idea and stated that the entire universe was inside of a shell. We are the ones living in hollow earth, looking up at a universe which is just an illusion created by an unknown solar mechanism. The stars are just reflections of the mechanism's light. We exist on the inside of earth and we aren't held to ground by gravity, but by centrifugal force as the earth spins. We have the illusion of day and night because of a central sun rotating that is half brilliant, half dark. Hmm. I don't know if I just wasn't understanding that correctly, but the half and half sun thing is kind of where I want to throw this one out. The story did gain some traction though, but I think it's a theory that I'll just have to place on the back burner for right now. I just thought it was an interesting concept. Look, until we can physically see what's inside of our Earth, stories like this are going to continue on. No one can say with 100% certainty that there aren't Germans, reptilians, mammoths, or a small sun living inside. But if there is, it sounds hella better than the crap we've got going on up here. Who knows, maybe one day we'll all be a part of that world.
The inhabitants of Agartha are extremely long-lived, as well as highly intelligent and scientifically advanced. They generally do not interfere with their exterior world, but some say they will appear every now and then to offer constructive criticism and technology that seems extraterrestrial. Ancient Buddhist philosophy mentions Agartha, claiming their society originated when a holy man fed a tribe into led a tribe into when a holy man led a tribe into caverns of the underworld, and that this race is superhuman and that this race is superhuman, possesses knowledge and intellectual abilities that far surpass what we have here on the surface. These superior entities do occasionally surface to investigate the progress of the human race. And it wasn't just Mesopotamian cultures either. Ancient Sumerians, Aztecs, Aztecs and Mayans, and in the whole... And it wasn't just Mesopotamian cultures either. And it wasn't just Mesopotamian cultures either. You are to return to the surface world. You are to return to the surface world. You are to return to the surface world with this message.